0: Despite the conflict in our world, there are people who are working for peace, talking about peace.
1: Well, I take Martin Luther King for an example. He was trying to make world peace for the African Americans. He was saying to them, you know, don't fight about it. The white men are your brothers.
2: And he just bursts into tears. It was just a a gorgeous moment that I think typifies what we're there to do, which is allow people to do the work that they want to be doing so that their country can move
3: forward. One thing you uh, or I I, or any of us can do is remind ourselves that our first urge to get angry uh, is probably coming from the amygdala and we need to give the rest of our brain time to
4: catch up. Religion and politics, they can be beautiful, but they guarantee division. Music can guarantee connection. Music is, in my opinion, the best way.
0: Stay tuned for Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. Jane Davis is the founder and executive director of Hope House, an organization that works with at-risk youth and incarcerated men and women, offering those people some hope for inner peace through self-exploration and service. She thinks the empathy she's felt for the incarcerated and for death row inmates, whom she's worked with often, goes back to when she was 16, when her grandparents were brutally attacked in their New York City apartment.
5: There was blood all over the walls. Paintings were slashed. My grandfather was unrecognizable. The man had tried to, he took bites out of all over his body. Um, they had fought. The man got away. And I traced the blood, and I ran into Central Park, and I'm standing in the middle of the park where the blood Dribbled into the grass in Central Park. And I'm standing there looking at this vastness, and it was like he's gone. And I just, I had, I was thinking, who was this? How could one person do this to another human being? It didn't make sense. This man had to have had some good. He had to, he needs help. And, And if we don't help him, then I don't want this to ever happen to anybody else, what happened to my family. It compelled me even more to go meet these monsters that everyone you know, seemed to know were out there. So I kind of went and traveled around to death rows and prisons around the country, even internationally. To this day, Carol, I still have not met that monster. I have met human beings who were sociopaths, which is a very profound mental illness. So how we could have any expectation of someone with a mental illness to behave in a way that um, we find acceptable, is it, it's not gonna happen. And I have sat with men on death row and in prisons and women who have done unconscionable, heinous crimes towards others. And, um, and yet there is always that spark of light and humanity I'm going to share one um, with a a young man that I connected with 15 years ago. And this was a young man who wrote a letter. And his first letter came out in August of 1998. And in that letter, he said, I don't know who will receive this, But whoever does, just pray for me, because I got a long way to go. I'm 15 years old, and I am lost as can be. And this was a young gang member in juvenile prison for violent crimes. And he was driven to send this letter out into the world, and it happened to land on my desk. No one wanted to touch him. And so I, I responded to him. I said, when you come out, we'll meet. And we did, and I showed up. And I said to him at the beginning, I am not invested in whether you make it or you don't make it. But if you are asking for help, my job is, my piece is, I will be with you every step of the way. And I think sometimes it's as simple as that. Just show up. And then magic happens. We met at a coffee shop in Atlanta, and I looked in his eyes and I said, I believe in you. And he cried. To this day, he tells me, no one ever said that to me. So what a simple thing to say, but I didn't make it up. I really believed it. Rod knew he had a place to talk about anything he needed to, and I was not going to judge him um, for whatever he needed to talk about, which was sexuality, um, religion, problems with his mother, you know, issues with the girlfriends, issues with the gangs.
6: As you say, Jane, many people considering the prisoners you work with do say lock them up and throw away the key or execute them. I, I say,
5: always well, say I'm not in the outcome business. I don't do it with the expectation of changing somebody's mind. And I would say they don't need your judgment. They need your help. And when you are so judgmental you cut off the ability for anyone to change and grow and by our harsh words we cut off the ability to create peace with another.
0: Jane Davis is the founder and executive director of Hope House, an organization that tries to bring peace to at-risk youth and incarcerated men and women. She talked with Carol Boss. More ahead on Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special. Peace Talks Radio is the radio and web series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On our program, we spotlight the art and science of peacemaking throughout history and in our lives today. Whether it's the search for inner peace, or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls and on this program you'll hear some excerpts from our series that we feel are especially compelling, like our conversation with third through fifth grade students from youth classes at a local Unitarian church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Their simple wisdom about how to make peace in the world and get along with each other left us inspired.
1: I was reading this thing in social studies and this guy wanted these Puritans to tolerate other beliefs. And I think that they should, a lot of people should do that now because you should be able to believe whatever you want to believe and stuff. One thing that would make it better? Fairness. Giving people what they need. Thinking about other people and how they would feel not about yourselves. I'd just say, you know, if you want to do something bad, think twice about it because, you know, because you have to see... Before you do something, think about what's going to happen after you do it. You treat anyone else the way you want to be treated. If you have someone that's not very nice to you, you still have to be nice to them. Well, like, take Martin Luther King for an example. He was trying to make world peace for the African Americans, and he he was saying to them, you know, don't fight about it. You know, the white men are your brothers. So we shouldn't fight each other. We should just tell ourselves that we are African Americans and we have rights too. And so like so he was a very big person in you know working with people to bring peace to the world.
0: We'll hear more from the young people on peacemaking later in our show. Youngsters caught in the tangled web of a divorce dispute have an especially hard time finding peace, as do the couples engaged in the divorce. With over 50% of American marriages ending in divorce, it's a conflict scenario important to consider, and we did so on Peace Talks Radio. And part of our program on seeking more peaceful, less acrimonious divorce included a conversation with couples therapist Samuel Roll, professor emeritus in psychology at the University of New Mexico who sketched out for me what he thought people had to
7: overcome to create a peaceful divorce. People have unfinished business. First of all, it involves a relationship to each other. People are angry. You know, they had, they had illusions of, uh, of how wonderful it was going to be. They had expectations. They felt people feel betrayed. They feel cheated. They feel that something nasty was done to them. They, they say, you know, I'll never forgive him for not traveling with me when my mother was dying of cancer. I'll never forgive him for that. Well, that's unfinished business. Uh, he said that he would take care of me, and I got sick, and he didn't take care of me. Um, He didn't have any respect for my career. She didn't respect how hard I worked. All of those unfinished business, the marriage ended, but the relationship continues, often with no way to resolve the bitterness left over because there's no context to work on the bitterness. It's over now. And then also then there's children. Now, When you get a divorce, you've pulled back some of the investment, some of the, the cathexes, the emotional investment to each other, but you're still invested in the children. And two things happen. First of all, you want the children; they're your children. And and people will some will often say, "My children; they're my children." And in addition to that, they want to win. And the biggest prize is the children. I won the children. People say, I won the divorce. I won custody, like, it, like it's a, a bet that you made, like it's a gamble, like it's stock market. I won the lottery. I won the children. The very language of it reveals that people think of it as a contest and as one person winning and the other person losing.
0: So when you're mediating this and you see what you've described, how do you therapeutically nudge people along – a path toward a peaceful place.
7: Well, uh, in all conflict resolution and all uh, peacemaking, um, people benefit when they realize that in spite of their hostility and anonymity, they have common goal or a common enemy. I think one of the things that helps uh, couples who have children uh, is when I point out that the research is very clear about children of divorce. And it's not that children are sometimes hurt by divorce. Children are always hurt by divorce. But that doesn't mean that they're hurt more by divorce than by a bad marriage. But they're always hurt by divorce. And children recover, but they only recover to the degree that two things happen there's frequent, predictable contact with both parents, and there's reduced hostility. Once they realize that by not reducing their hostility and resolving their conflicts, they will hurt what they love most in the world their children they sometimes then become determined to work things out. But sometimes they don't care if they hurt the children. They are so angry. They are so angry that they're willing to destroy what they love most in the world, to hurt what they love most in the world, in order to win, in order to hit back, in order to express their bitterness.
0: So how do you work on those competitive elements?
7: Well, there are a number of things at the rational level and some things that are unconscious. But at the rational level, you help them see concretely how it is that they're hurting the children. That is a wake-up call for most people. And you help them see, you help people see, or you help them discover how it is that by not giving up their old, their old anger and hurt, they are continuing to hurt and they're tying themselves together in a shackle of animosity and hatred. If, uh, it's not as simple as telling them the story, but I think the story that the Dalai Lama told, that one of the stories he told him when he was here, I think contained it. He told a story of two monks who were um, going to a shrine to clean it up and, and keep it looking nice so that the people who, who meditated there could be at peace. And it was high in the mountains, and so any time it rained, any little creek became a river. And when they were on their way, they met a, a woman who was sitting by a river, a creek that had uh, become a river, and she was sitting with a basket of food And she was crying. And one of the monks said to her, what's the matter? She said, well, I crossed the river to buy food for my children for the week, and then it rained. And if I try to cross the river, the river may take my food and my children won't eat this week. Or the river may take me and they won't have a mother. One of the monks said to her, listen, my brother is big and strong. You give him the basket and he will hold it on his head and he will cross and your children will eat. And he said, and I am even stronger. You will sit on my shoulder and I will carry you across and you'll be safe and your children will have a mother. When they got to the other side of the expanded creek, she gave them a little token, a little money to take to the shrine and, and honor their loving kindness. An hour later, one monk turns to the other and says, you know, when we became monks, we, would, we said, we vowed that we would never touch a woman, even the hem of her garment. And now you had the softest, most tender part of a woman's anatomy on your neck. And his brother said, you're right. But you know, I put her down an hour ago. You're still carrying her. Carrying old hurts repeats the hurt. And it's a responsibility for the person carrying the hurt to set it down. And it's not only your responsibility, it's your vested interest to put down the old hurt. Or else you can die of the poison of carrying around vengeance. Nations have done it. People have done it. Religions have done it. And there's another thing that... that that every divorcing couple has to go through. We are the organism made for love. And everything we love, we lose. Now, the blessing is that within this bizarre organism called human beings that's made for love is also built in the capacity to grieve. But you have to do the grief. Every Separation, as Schopenhauer said before Freud, every separation is like a death and every reunion is like a resurrection, but every divorce is like a death. But it's like a death that you can't put away in the graveyard because the foot keeps on coming out. And so dealing with the unresolved aspects of the marriage, dealing with, with the investment in your children, and then dealing with the grief or not dealing with the grief, because if you don't deal with the grief, it becomes embittered depression and raging anger,
0: Albuquerque, New Mexico, family therapist, Samuel Roll. On another Peace Talks Radio episode, we wondered, in general, why is it such a challenge to keep peace in our families and workplaces? Why are people so reactive to one another? Our interviewer, Suzanne Kreider, talked with Dr. Daniel Goleman, author of two best-selling books, Emotional Intelligence and Social Intelligence.
8: Hey, what is it about the brain that prevents people from getting along better than we do? (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, you know, our brain is wired for a different reality than we live in today. Uh, the brain, the human brain was shaped over about 80,000 generations in evolution when we mostly lived on savannas. And we were dealing with real life, urgent, dire threats, snarling tigers, dangerous rustles in the in the woods that warned us something was happening. And so we're attuned to uh, a range of dangers that we don't face. Instead, we face symbolic dangers. This is one of the complications.
8: And that symbolic danger is, for example, if somebody steps in front of you in the line at the post office, it's like you're being attacked, but really nothing's wrong.
3: Well, that's exactly right. I mean that the danger, the threat can be something like someone else took credit for my work or, you know, honey, we have to talk, or any of those kinds of messages that, that uh, we get that we might take as a potential threat. But in fact, biologically, they're no threat at all. And yet we respond with the same surge of stress hormones and shifts of blood to our limbs so we can run and or fight. So we respond with kind of an overkill to threats in today's life. And what can people do, what can our listeners do
8: to mediate that overkill that you talk about when we're more reactive than we really need to be?
3: Well, one thing you uh, or I I, or any of us can do is remind ourselves that our first urge to get angry or to be really fearful uh, is probably coming from the amygdala, and we need to give the rest of our brain time to catch up. So just taking a pause, kind of a mindful pause, before we respond is essential. I remember going to a classroom in New Haven, Connecticut. On the wall of every room, there's a poster. It's a stoplight, red light, yellow light, green <laughs> light. And it says, when, when you're getting upset, remember the stoplight. Uh, red light, stop, calm down, and think before you act. That's the critical piece, to realize that our emotions come to us unbidden. We, we don't expect them. We don't ask for them. They come from an unconscious part of the brain. But once we feel a certain way, we have a choice point, which is how we respond. Yellow light, think of a range of different things you could do. Green light, pick the best one and try it out. Well, you know, kids in the schools are taught to use it from kindergarten on. But I think it's good advice for any of us. hmm
8: Dan, tell us about social-emotional learning programs for children. What are those?
3: Well, it's something I've been advocating since I wrote the book Emotional Intelligence. That book really is an argument for making sure that every child gets lessons in self-awareness and handling their rocky emotions and empathizing in social skill in childhood, making sure that they get it as part of their school lessons. It turns out that social-emotional learning programs uh, fit quite seamlessly into the school day don't take much time for academic topics, but add something really rich for kids, which is teaching them how to manage themselves, how to manage their emotional world, how to handle relationships, how to get along with other kids, how to have a happy life. Uh, and I think there's nothing more important. The big news is that a, a major study, it's called the meta-analysis, it aggregates, puts together this one, more than 200 separate studies of schools where kids had these programs and where they didn't, it found that every positive kind of behavior, liking school, behaving in class, not cutting glass, goes up about 10 percent and far more in the schools that need it the most. Every negative behavior, fights, violence, disruptive behavior in class, goes down by the same margin, again, most in the schools that need it the most. And academic achievement scores go up by 11 percent. Why? Because when a a child is uh, preoccupied by fear, anger, jealousy, whatever it is, they can't pay attention. Helping children manage their disruptive emotions means that they can pay full attention to what it is they're supposed to learn. So it's a win-win-win for the schools and for children and for our communities. Wouldn't critics say, gee, that's what parents are supposed to teach kids? Of course it is, and parents, most parents do. But remember, not every child has a situation at home where they get the kind of parenting they need. And even if your family is very good at it, think about it. Your children will go through life with every other child, and you want to be sure that the people that they're going to share their life with who are going to be in the community also have these lessons.
0: That's Daniel Goleman. An internationally known psychologist, his 1995 book Emotional Intelligence was on the New York Times bestseller list for a year and a half. Goldman's also the author of Social Intelligence and, in 2010, Ecological Intelligence. He's one of the top thinkers in this area, as is William Urey, author of books like Why We Fight, Getting Past No, Negotiating with Difficult People, and co-author of Getting to Yes, Negotiating Agreement Without Giving In. That was an 8 million copy bestseller translated into over 30 languages. William Urey's book, Getting to Peace, was re-released in paperback under the title The Third Side. And in that book, he sketched out roles that we all can play to help resolve conflicts that we or others are in. He talked with Suzanne Kreider.
8: Let's use the workplace because most of our listeners go to work or they've had jobs in the past. Talk about one or two of the resolve roles and how people can use those in the workplace to prevent conflict.
9: One of the roles is, is the role of the mediator. And everyone in the workplace, uh, you, know, you don't have to be a professional mediator, but everyone in the workplace is a third party. They hear, they see uh, two people or two departments get into a conflict. And there are informal ways in which we can play the role of a mediator, which is to listen to each side to hear them out, to try and communicate each to the other what the other one is saying, to bring them together, to encourage them to work it out. Uh, We can play that role of a mediator. And every manager, you know, whether they think about it or not, for example, is a mediator uh, of sorts. They have to mediate among their staff. They have to mediate uh, among their bosses sometimes. They have to mediate among their colleagues. Everyone, in fact, in the workplace can play that role of a third-sider. But one of the roles also is the role of the of the healer, which is that there's an emotional dimension to a lot of conflicts. Uh, human beings we all we all have emotions, and so oftentimes those feelings they you know the relationship needs to be healed. It's not just enough to resolve the conflict, as as you know the Bushmen teach us. You have to bring the people back into a relationship so that they can continue to work together. Because after all, that's 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 what you're doing in the workplace.
8: Do you see the possibility that? Workplaces might even want to talk more openly about third side roles, or are there a lot of mediation programs already in workplaces?
9: Well, it's beginning. Uh, there's been a huge shift in the last uh, 30 years that I've been uh, involved and in, and watching. Uh, now, now, nowadays, I mean, for example, labor management conflicts. I mean, labor management conflicts a hundred years ago there used to be a lot of violence in that even when I worked in labor management uh in, in the coal mines back in the in the seventies, there were uh you know, there were bomb threats and people were packing guns. Nowadays people are learning to talk things out. They're learning, okay, we can negotiate. There are negotiation courses, there are mediators involved. There's been a, a lot more sophistication now in the workplace about how to deal with with differences, and and the work has just begun. We we have we have a ways to go, but I do see a a, a lot of progress in the last uh, in the last generation.
8: Let's talk briefly though about the third stage, which mm-hmm. is containment. Mm-hmm. And Bill, I'm I'm going to a family reunion this weekend, and I'm not expecting any fisticuffs. Um, however, in the past, you know, there's been some door slamming and some yelling. So what are one or two of the containment roles that my siblings could play just in case somebody kind of blows it?
9: Yeah, well, the uh, containment role might be that if uh, things start to <laughs> escalate out of control, you know, someone just separates the two parties and say, hey, you know, what?" or takes, takes one, one of the siblings for a walk <laughs> and just kind <laughs> of just a little bit of a cooling off period. You know, a family is a really good instance because if you think about a healthy family, and you look at what the parents do. They're playing all 10 roles seamlessly. They don't think about it necessarily, but they're playing They're playing the role of the provider. They're giving the kids the love, the attention that they need. They're playing the role of the teacher, helping the kids learn to talk things out. They're playing the role of the mediator sometimes. They're playing the role of the arbiter. And they're playing the containment roles of, hey, you know... Uh, being the witness, re- kind of watching what's what's going on, and then if things start to escalate, saying, "Hey, look, uh, no fists. Uh, you know, you can use pillows," or or sometimes playing the role of the peacekeeper of separating the kids. So, if you think about it, all the time, these are roles. This is not this is not something I've I've invented. This is just something I'm naming that is really around us all the time. It's our human heritage, and it's just something that we need to bring out, to elaborate, and to reinvent to deal with with the conflicts and the violence of today.
0: William Uri on Peace Talks Radio. He co-founded with former President Jimmy Carter the International Negotiation Network, a non-governmental body seeking to end civil wars around the world. During the 1980s, he helped the U.S. and Soviet governments create nuclear crisis centers designed to avert an accidental nuclear war. And more recently, Uri has served as a third party in helping to end a civil war in Indonesia and helping to prevent one in Venezuela. There are actually lots of both volunteers and paid professionals doing good work all around the world in service of peace and human rights. We'll hear from some of them when our special continues. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special, more in a minute. You're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special. Highlights from the radio and online series, Peace Talks Radio. You can hear scores of complete episodes at peacetalksradio.com or download them for free in podcast form from iTunes. Each program features a different take on the art and science of peacemaking or has tips on strategies to reduce conflict nonviolently in our daily lives. I'm Paul Ingalls. In conflict-ridden nations like Colombia, Guatemala, Indonesia, Mexico, and others, there is a common desire among many civilians and international observers that despite the disputes, basic human rights be respected, violence curtailed, and that disagreements be negotiated fairly. In some of these regions, people who are working to defend human rights and lobbying for peaceful solutions do so at the risk of their lives every day. If no one else is watching, someone can be disappeared, and no one can be fingered as responsible. On one episode of Peace Talks Radio, we featured the work of Peace Brigades International, which employs unarmed bodyguards into such regions to neutrally accompany human rights defenders who are working to give peace a better chance. Our Carol Boss talked with PBI workers Dana Brown and here, Neil Mahoney.
10: The idea of accompaniment is fundamentally, first starts with the, our belief that it's local people in these conflicts that are going to do the most to change things. So what we've tried to do in developing accompaniment is figure out, How do we give them the space to do it? How do we protect them so they can actually take risks and try to change the terrible things going on in their own societies? And what we found, starting way back in Guatemala in 1983, was that just having a foreign volunteer with them was some level of protection, because whether it was dictators or death squads or whoever was out to get them, they really didn't want to carry out attacks right in front of the international community with us watching. Now, as far as who those activists are, human rights defender is actually a recent term that's been developed. But the whole idea is these are people in civil society who are trying to organize change in their own society to change dynamics of human rights abuse and conflict. Whoever is taking those risks, we're trying to strategize and work together with them to figure out where can we place an international presence and place international pressure outside most effectively to keep them safe so they can keep on doing their work.
6: Dana Brown, you recently returned from a trip in Colombia as an accompanier. Do you have an experience that you can share with us uh, that gives us a vivid picture of what you and your team have done? Well, one of my most memorable
2: accompaniments was when we accompanied a human rights lawyer that we've worked with for 10 years now, who is based in Bogota, but is not originally from Bogota. He and most of his team um, are from the coast, from the, the Atlantic coast of the country, and have been displaced because of their work, because of repeated threats on their lives and threats uh, on their family. So this particular lawyer, who's a very well-known lawyer, he was going back to a community that he had worked in previously for the first time in 14 years. Uh, And he hadn't gone back because of the risks that he runs in that particular zone of the country, because he's very well known there because that's where he's from. And because there's a high paramilitary presence in that part of the country. So he'd actually been carrying a case for 14 years without having visited the victims and been able to interview them himself in 14 years. Um, It's an entire community that was displaced by the paramilitary forces and hadn't been able to return to their land. And he decided that it was finally time for him to go back. And he asked for our accompaniment because he didn't feel comfortable going alone. And he knew that the, because of the political work we do, we would be raising his profile, that he, he would know that people knew he was there and that if something happened, there would be a large reaction. So and he's a very wonderful, but also a very stoic man. And it was an incredibly emotional experience for me because as soon as we got there, and it's a long trip, you go on a plane from Bogotá to Barranquilla, you get on a bus, you get off the bus in the middle of nowhere, you get on another bus, you get on a boat, you cross the river, and all of a sudden we show up at this tiny little community. And the the community itself, everyone is standing on the shore waiting for us. And they run up to him and they say, doctor, doctor, they, they call lawyers doctor in, in Colombia. And he just bursts into tears because he's so overwhelmed by seeing these people that he hasn't been able to see in so long that he's been terrified to go back and see in person because of the threats that he's received. And here we are with him and with some of the junior lawyers that he works with. Um, shaking hands with these people, and he's bawling, a man that no one I know has ever seen cry. So it was just a a gorgeous moment that I think typifies what we're there to do, which is allow people to do the work that they want to be doing so that their country can move forward.
0: That's Dana Brown of Peace Brigades International. Another approach to helping a struggling country move forward involves focusing on education of its youth. For years in Afghanistan, few young boys and virtually no young girls had the benefit of even a basic education. Next, a school builder in Afghanistan, who actually built a school in 2001. It flourished into 2008 before it was destroyed by militants. The man behind that school was Dr. Mohammed Khan Harote, born in a nomadic Afghan tribe in the 1940s to poor parents. In 1970, an American family in Iowa helped support him in the U.S. while he got the early education that prepared him for medical school back in Afghanistan. Now he's a U.S. citizen and doctor of nuclear medicine at Kaiser Permanente Hospital in Portland, Oregon. A 1998 visit back to his homeland left him with a keen desire to build a school in Shin or Green Village, near where he grew up. He created Green Village Schools, a non-profit organization in Oregon to raise funds and in early 2001 he went back to Afghanistan looking for the key Taliban leaders who would have to grant him permission to create a school that would teach young boys and young Afghan girls
11: so we went to start this uh, to start the schooling back in 2001 i met with well, the elders of the of the village and talked to them and they said well oh, maybe the Taliban will not let us to start the school i said well you know They are Afghans, they speak Pashto language, they are from this country and we are from the same religion, the same culture, the same country. Let's go talk to them, ask them. So uh, actually nobody volunteered except three people. We went to Kandahar and I spent three days, four days in Kandahar and trying to find out the right person. I was able to find somebody and I talked to them my name is uh, so and so and i live in the united states of america i came here to build a school for the children of afghanistan if you will uh, help me out because we need female doctors for the for the female or female nurses for the females for the women so and and we need uh, you know doctors male for the male the person over there told me this particular person told me that we have nothing against schooling but we want them to be uh, Follow be uh, follow according to Sharia law, and I said, "Well, this is a Muslim country; we have nothing against Sharia law." Sure, absolutely. They said the guys has to be different and the girls has to be different. They don't want to hear anything mischievous in ha- happening in their society with the boys or girls. I said, "Well, we will work on it." And that was the letter that he gave me. A letter. I went to Kabul and talked to the minister of education at that time of the, time the Taliban. You call it. And they say, okay, they did not give me a written letter, but they told me, yes, I can go and start with it.
0: Well, I can imagine that the community was totally devastated by the loss. Uh, Now, at this point, how would you assess the strength of their will to try and rebuild? I could imagine that they would be sort of frightened by the violence of this destruction. Do you have some hearts and minds to re-win locally
11: there? You know, the people before when they had a school they did not know how how great opportunity they have to so their children were going to school when the school got destroyed and these kids were running after uh, uh, gambling in in guns and and poppies and fighting and the parents cannot control them I think this gave us a more support a more uh, parents are now much more stronger into sending their children to school than it were before because they had a gift and it was lost. Now it's coming back again, and they are dancing for it.
0: Mm, I see, so after the destruction of the school, it was almost immediately you saw a throwback to the dangers of uh, uh, an illiterate student population.
11: Exactly, mm-hmm. and the parents are especially very, very, it's difficult to control teenagers, and the school is a very good uh, way of educating them, uh, when there's no school, no matter where you go, the problem comes on.
0: Green Village Schools is the Oregon-based nonprofit, profit non-governmental association uh, that you're associated with, whose sole purpose is to help build schools in Helmand Province in Afghanistan. Now, as you travel the country to tell your story and hope to raise funds for the project, I'm sure that you run into a hesitancy from some Americans to giving to education for Afghanistan. Some might say there are school systems in the United States that need my dollars, or maybe another charitable cause. How do you make them believe that dollars to Afghan schools can help keep them somehow more secure in America?
11: I think they understand that education uh, and people who are well-trained and well-educated is the cause of building bridges of peace and prosperity across the nations. And I don't think they are looking into the today things. I think they are looking into 20 years from now, 30 years from now, and they all see the vision that this will someday uh, a way that we can have peace and prosperity between the two nations and the, the two countries, and people can come together and agree on things. It doesn't mean that they have to agree to accept everything, but I think for majority part they, they see the vision that we can agree for the most of things, and we can help each other and be friendly and open. And that's, I think, that's very important. In this country, people can see it very clearly and better, and I'm very thankful to all of them.
0: Next, a clip from our episode that followed closely on the heels of two major environmental disasters in 2010, the BP Gulf oil spill and the toxic sludge spill in Hungary. We talked with a social ecology professor at the University of New Mexico named Daniel Schwartz, also Kathy Sanchez, a Native American environmental activist and pottery maker. But first, a man named John Francis, whose response to an oil spill in 1971 was to quit riding in motorized vehicles for 22 years and then not to speak a word to anyone for 17 years.
12: As I (laughs) was driving across the Golden Gate Bridge with my girlfriend in our four-wheel drive vehicle, I understood that part of what was washing up on the shore, I had some responsibility because here I am driving a motorized vehicle and we're using this oil and I wanted the oil quickly, I wanted it cheaply, I, I wanted lots of it. And because of that, the industry, I was creating a demand, as we all do. The industry was responding to that demand. Now, absolutely, oil companies have a greater preponderance of the responsibility, especially when they spill it, but in all fairness, I, I have to take some of the responsibility myself.
6: For the 20th anniversary of Earth Day, which was in 1990, you arrived on the East Coast. And it was there, wasn't it, that you decided to speak?
12: I had walked across the United States, um, studied oil spills all the way up to a Ph.D. level. Uh, Environment was uh, my degree. And when I got to the East Coast, I finally had something that, that I needed to say. Environment, to me, had changed. When I started out, it was just about pollution and soon became about loss of species and loss of habitat, all those things we traditionally think of environment. But what I understood was, and it was in the literature, is that people are part of the environment. And if people were indeed part of the environment, then our first opportunity to treat the environment in a sustainable way, or even to understand what sustainability is, is in the relationship with ourselves and with each other. If we related to each other with respect and love and dignity and not looking to, I guess, exploit one another, to oppress each other, if we we really treated each other the way we wanted to see our physical environment treated, then we would find that what would happen in our physical environment would be a mitigation of a lot of the problems and a lot of the issues that we are facing today.
6: Kathy Sanchez, how do Native Americans who are conscious of um, caring for the Earth act in their Everyday life that connects them with this relationship with nature, such as shopping and and using vehicles and and building
13: your homes. I think, um, as um, conditioned humans into this culture of violence, and if we want to be about the culture of peace, we need to do it within our means. We need to think about what we are capable of doing, whether they're baby steps, big leaps of change, what we are able to do, we should do. And it starts with prayer. Everybody can say their good thoughts. Everybody can always be conscious of offering a thank you, a smile. You have to be about purposeful living. And then you define that for yourself. What is purposeful living? Yes, maybe we have to shop, but where do we shop? Yes, maybe we're shopping 90% of our time. Let's cut it down to 60%. Let's make our own things. Let's barter. Let's exchange. Let's give without having to expect money. And how do you cut down? How do you, start, how do you start being more in walking on Mother Earth as opposed to zipping in a car going fast? Because then time is an element that has been taken from us. Let's claim our time to be with each other back again.
6: Is there a way to ask for permission and use Earth's resources uh, appropriately?
13: Yes, there is. When we do our pottery, when we make our pottery, we have to get the clay. And so we offer our prayers and ask for permission to take. And we only take that which will sustain us.
6: Daniel, you're teaching juniors and seniors. If you can get to the essence of what you would like to instill in these future guardians of our dear Mother Earth.
14: We need to make a turn. We need to change the paradigm or paradigms, I present different paradigms. One of the new paradigms is called the precautionary principle, where we we don't look at how much harm should be uh, allowable, but how little harm is possible. You don't just go ahead and uh, put out some chemical into the environment, or, or do some process, and then wait to see what the effects are. It's simply too dangerous. And that's one of the problems of uh, drilling down thirty, thirty-five thousand 35,000 feet after you've drilled, after you've gone down a mile into the ocean uh, to look for oil. And also what that does is marginalize uh, alternative energy sources. So the new paradigms are important. Let me relate a personal story very quickly. When I was 15 years old, I lived along one of the old transport canals uh, near the uh, Delaware River, which separates New Jersey and Pennsylvania. That transport canal we used for swimming, and boating, and fishing, and just hanging out. It was beautiful. It was a wonderful ecosystem with lightning bugs and so on. That transport canal will always be in my heart. The transport canal, in the name of progress, was transformed into a freeway. It was cemented over with little or no resistance. It was thought of as progress, and people did not act in their own interest, and they traded in this beautiful, wonderful canal and that whole ecosystem for a noisy, rather odiferous freeway system with constant noise and constant odors and gave it up in the name of an ideology instead of thinking, what's in our interest? And I think that's, that happens often with the notion of progress. We don't look at the larger picture. We become rational or rationalized without looking at reason and history and the kinds of, of things that make life worth living. So the canal no longer exists. We need to rethink uh, notions of progress Progress for whom?
0: University of New Mexico social ecology professor Daniel Schwartz. We also heard from Native American environmental activist Kathy Sanchez and John Francis, who gave up riding in motorized vehicles for 22 years after a 1971 California oil spill. You're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special. I'm Paul Ingalls, and we'll have more in just a minute. You're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special. Highlights from the radio and online series Peace Talks Radio, all about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can hear complete episodes, read transcripts, see photos, and much, much more at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls. In 2009, I was watching the PBS TV series We Shall Remain, five parts on key moments in Native American history. The first episode was called After the Mayflower and was the story of a Wampanoag chief named Massasoit, who chose to cooperate with the Pilgrims and form an alliance in 1621. He struck an agreement that some see as the first peace treaty between Native Americans and British settlers. Others call it a war alliance of convenience to both parties, who needed something the other offered at the time. On Peace Talks Radio, we talked with two Native American scholars of this period in history who were affiliated with Plymouth Plantation Museum in Massachusetts, Darius Coombs, and here first, Bob Charlebois.
15: Massasoit was a revered leader, and it, was, it wasn't based on fear. It was based on love. Uh, so we know that about him. Uh, whether or not he was inclined to peace, we're not sure about that, you know. He was inclined to do the, uh, the best thing for his people at the time which would have uh, secured their peace and their well-being. I don't know if he was uh, someone who was inclined towards uh, being uh, offensive militarily or anything of, of that sort, but uh, we don't know. We just don't know.
16: You hear about Matt Slate being um, a great leader, a great sachem, great chief. He was smart enough to come out here in the spring of 1621 to Plymouth Colony and make a war alliance, I wouldn't even call it a peace alliance, it was more or less like a war alliance with the colonists, before a Narragansett chief, most likely would have been Canonicus, so so have that alliance going on to help fight out the Narragansett people. Mm-hmm. So he
0: started to observe this Plymouth community from the outskirts.
16: Yeah, there were signs that Masolite knew about the people being out here, um, but the first time there was a Native person going into the, into the Pilgrim Village, in, Village was in March of 1621, that's when that very famous treaty was established.
11: no i do We want to be at peace with you. We want you to promise that none of your people will harm any of our people. Wuten kakan tan. For the Kenya, wona dey naspi Nino
4: one. Anunus <laughs> mata no was e a ona nog.
11: Let us agree, then, that if anyone unjustly attack you, then we will help you. And if anyone unjustly attack us, then you will help us.
0: The treaty negotiation scene as presented in the PBS series We Shall Remain.
15: I think this is just another example. It it was the model by which Europeans and later the United States went from from the east coast to the pacific make a treaty break it and it's sort of a two steps forward one step back process and they they kept doing it back and forth and back and forth uh i mean whether you're looking at the uh the history of the uh the treaties with the, the lakota nation or uh you know the wars against the apaches or the comanches in texas and uh, the Shawnee, like, which is, which is an all and we shall remain, you know, and, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's got to be laid out there. It's got to be understood as to what happened, you know, that dialogue is all important. That's, I'm a big dialogue guy.
0: Bob Charlebois and Darius Coombs are both Native American scholars affiliated with the Plymouth Plantation Museum in Plymouth, Massachusetts, from where they spoke to us. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to highlights of the Peace Talks radio series. In one episode in our series, we met Mark Johnson, the music recording engineer behind the viral video smash Stand By Me, which brought together dozens of musicians from around the world, all adding their parts, often on the streets of their hometowns, to a single recording of the soul music classic. Johnson's efforts spawned a CD, a DVD, and a live tour under the banner Peace Through Music. All proceeds from these remarkable performances were going to help build music schools in impoverished communities around the globe. Mark Johnson was interviewed for Peace Talks Radio by Carol Boss.
6: Have you ever met up with any skeptics of any sort who might say, yeah, you know, <clears throat> this is all really nice, but what can it do? really do to to connect us, to bring peace?
4: I have, of course. I've, I've definitely run into skeptics, but I think at the end of the day, in my personal opinion, this is the root of what we need as a planet to come together, because there's no other thing that intrinsically will connect us. So religion and politics, they can be beautiful, but they guarantee division. Music can guarantee connection if that's at the intention. So... Although there's plenty of other uh, ways to to go about trying to unite people, music is, in my opinion, the best way.
6: Why don't you share with us some of your favorite tracks and and perhaps some stories about recording them?
4: So after we started Stand By Me, we wanted to have a similar song with a similar aesthetic and a similar unifying quality. So we chose Bob Marley's One Love. As we were recording that song, we started it with a steel guitar from New Orleans. (laughs) ¶¶ and the thing about it was it was after Hurricane Katrina, so the feeling in the city was rather sorrowful. So you can see that the g- steel guitar opens up with a, um, with a feeling of, of more of a blues gospel feel. And then when we went down to South Africa to record Sinamuva, which is a choir, a Zulu choir in Umlazi, South Africa, we went up to a little mountaintop, put headphones on them, and they started to sing in Zulu. You know, I, don't, I think we, we had thought that they were going to sing in English. So when we heard them singing in Zulu, it opened up this whole new world for us where we don't have to try to take these songs and turn them into... Um, you know, what they were traditionally written, we can expand and and try to get people to contribute their own style and make them their own. And uh, that that sort of was an amazing experience for us. So that song became an amazing track for me just because of the journey and seeing everybody saying, you know, let's get together and feel all right. ¶¶
0: the song One Love from the Playing for Change Peace Through Music project coordinated by music engineer Mark Johnson. The sentiment of that song came through the voices of young people I visited with at a youth program at an Albuquerque Unitarian Church not too long ago. We started our program today with some of the voices of these 3rd through 5th graders and I wanted to get back to them for a bit as we draw toward the close of our program today. I asked them what they thought they could do to help create a more peaceful planet.
1: I could make more friends. That would probably work. How would you do that? First, you say hi, which is pretty easy. Step two, they answer. You let them answer. That's step two, basically. You try to get to know them. Of course you to get try to get to know them. You find out where from the world they're from. You... Find out what language they speak. Find out what like what games they like to play. And you play them with them. Well, you can just start out small, you know? Like, if you have a fight with a friend, then you can forgive them instead of storming off and being grouchy for the rest of the day or a week. Just accepting people, who they are, and that might at least make um, world peace. I think something I can do every day would be I guess living like I was going to die in five seconds or die tomorrow and just living every day as best as you can and not wasting your energy on something silly like somebody took your pencil and you're angry because that was your pencil and you got it first. If you were to not be able to see that person ever again. And the last thing you said to that person was, I'm never talking to you again, or something really hurtful. You're going to regret it, when later they're not your friend anymore because you were mean to them over a pencil. I had a conflict with one of my friends about talking to another friend. And she was telling the teacher, version of her story and I totally disagreed with that and I called her a liar and that wasn't very smart and then we were about to start yelling at each other and then our teacher came and said before you get all attitude and stuff like that think about what happened and so and I was like okay and I told her how I felt and what I thought happened And she said that she felt like I was butting in. So I said that I was sorry and that I didn't mean to button, And I told her my point of view. And like four minutes later, we were hugging and laughing.
0: Wow. That's something else. That's great. To hear this program again and to link to the full episodes from which these excerpts were taken, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com, and check out our 2010 programs. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2003. You can also order CDs, sign up for a free podcast and monthly newsletter. And importantly, find out how you can keep this particular program on the air by making a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit media organization that produces the show. Your dollars really do make a difference. Find out more about doing your part at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls for Carol Boss and Suzanne Kreider. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.